honor. You know, it's been a long time since I sat in a classroom uh, before a professor and, and heard them pour out what they know into me. And, uh, and so I've been excited about uh, this weekend having Dr. Craig Blomberg from Denver Seminary here with us, um, with us this morning. I love listening to people that, which happens quite often, that know more than me. And when it comes to the New Testament, Dr. Blomberg definitely knows more than me. He's, he's studied it probably his entire life. God has given him a passion for the New Testament and, and for how it came to be and, and why we can trust it as being authoritative in our life and, and, and how it was translated. And we've been looking at all of those things over the course of the last three weeks. And, and today, uh, Dr. Blomberg is going to come up here and, and he's going to teach us from Luke chapter 1. Which is interesting because the book of Acts, which we're starting next week, was written also by Luke. And I think it's great for us to, to hear this morning uh, from Dr. Blomberg. He is, as I said, New Testament professor at Denver Seminary. He, he taught my brother, Dennis, uh, who graduated from Denver Seminary and actually remembers him, um, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, all of the students that he sees, he would remember my brother, Dennis, who well, had to have been 20 years ago, right? How long have you been a professor at Denver Seminary? 31 years. 31 years. Wow, you don't look that old, Dr. Blomberg. I, um, <laughs> and, and here's the thing. He, he, uh, he taught us well yesterday at the Christ Reformed Presbyterian Church in, in Torrington, and uh, um, he's going to come this morning. There was something else. Come on up here, Dr. Blomberg. There was something else I was going to say, and I just don't remember. What, oh, yeah, I do now. Um, if you've ever read Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, um, that was the first time I heard the name Craig Blomberg because he interviewed uh, Craig in, in the validity and the reliability of, of the Bible. You know, because cause what we believe is given to us, was revealed to us through uh, the books of the Bible. And uh, Lee was kind of on a spiritual journey of sorts and... Uh, you know, he set out actually to prove that, that Christianity was wrong and, and uh, he should have known that there are others like C.S. Lewis who have attempted to do that and come to the only conclusion that they could come to and that it's true and real and surrendered his life to Christ. So um, let's give Dr. Blomberg a hand and let's hear what he has to say to us this morning. Thank you. Well, thank you. There's a very simple reason I remember Dennis when he was working with uh, college students at CSU. He had me up on several occasions, so that's how you remember grads when they stay in touch with you afterwards. And I can see a little resemblance, so love to meet your dad, see what he looks like. And uh, I'm just going to do something with this microphone, get it out of my way. I take it you were talking about football because both of my teams lost yesterday, the Colorado Rockies and the Chicago Cubs, but they're baseball teams. <laughs> but uh, it's good to be here. Um, for 15 years, we were in uh, Baptist General Conference, now Converge Church, Mission Hills in Littleton, Colorado. 
My wife, Fran, was the missions director for about nine and a half years, and we were happily ensconced there, and God uh, lifted us up and planted us, uh, moved us from the suburbs to uh, the city to a still young urban church plant called Scum of the Earth Church. If you don't believe that, uh, go to uh, scumoftheearth.net and you can find out all about us. Um, don't go to scumoftheearth.com. That'll be a heavy metal rock band, but scumoftheearth.net and you'll, you'll get the right, the right group. Um, but uh, many, many uh, pleasant memories of, uh, of 15 years with, with Mission Hills and... Uh, I was reminded of that again the last couple days in Torrington because uh, around a lot of Presbyterians and several times people asked if I was a Presbyterian and uh, I just kind of said, uh, well, actually I'm a Baptist, um, but uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. I, I told them very straightforwardly I'm a Baptist <laughs> and they forgave me. What is your relationship to the Bible? <laughs> Are you a lifelong fan? <laughs> Are you a daily or almost daily reader? I have not studied the Bible or even the New Testament my whole life, but I have since I was 16, and uh, that had a lot to do with uh, my experience in the previous 15 and a half years of my life. I was raised in a mainline Protestant church that did not have a tradition of teaching its people anything about daily Bible reading. And I really only owned my faith uh, in what I can be at all confident was a, a saving way, thanks to uh, a Campus Life Youth for Christ club in my high school, my sophomore year when I was about 15 and a half. But even then, it took a number of months later, the experience of having a neighbor and a fellow classmate, um, and even a girl who had come and visited the club a few times, try to take her life. That rocked my world, and... Almost as dramatically was the fact that uh, completely apart from our uh, paid staff person with Campus Life, several of my peers um, organized uh, a prayer meeting in one of the boys' homes whose parents were very supportive of what we were doing. And the idea of a dozen or so high schoolers coming together for the sole purpose of praying for a friend, or for that matter, coming together for the sole purpose of praying for anything, was a brand new concept to me. We had prayer in church. It was always 
scripted. It was liturgical church. Um, I might have heard somebody once or twice pray in a public context without a script, but even that was a novel idea that I was getting used to. And what I was stunned by on that evening were three of my friends. They were all sophomores. They weren't even the older kids. (laughs) Who, at different points during the evening, quoted from memory passages of the Bible that just spoke directly to our situation. And I was blown away. And I went up to them afterwards, and uh, I am very confident there was no conspiracy theory. Um, They had not consulted each other. Now, if Craig comes, here's what you say. Independently, I asked them, how how could you do that? How did you know Old Testament, New Testament, different passages, and those were all so relevant? And every one of those three boys gave me the same answer. I read my Bible every day. I highlight things that really speak to me. I occasionally try to memorize scripture. And I said, I want to do this. And that set me on a plan of Bible reading that has taken all different forms over the years. And have I missed a day here and there? Absolutely. (laughs) But much more often than not, um, I have turned to Scripture for guidance, for information, for conviction, for encouragement, for challenge, for comfort. But we live in an age when uh, the things I heard as an even young adult, things like, I swear on a stack of holy Bibles, when somebody wanted to really insist they were telling the truth. Or it's the gospel truth, or even just uh, the good book says, I haven't heard any of those statements in years, <laughs> not even in the church. Today, people just swear, <laughs> not by a stack of holy Bibles, and I'm not sure they think it's a good book. And... Uh, Gospel doesn't necessarily, in most people's minds, add anything to the word truth. We went out last night, thanks to uh, the gracious honorarium that uh, they gave us in Torrington, to uh, a restaurant for dinner, and Fran said on a kind of a bulletin board at the entryway, look, there's a a flyer about the talks you just gave. Cool. Cool. And at the top, it had the same kind of heading, can we still believe the Bible? And somebody had written in with a pen, no. (laughs) That's the age we live in. We can't answer every question this morning that people have about the Bible. I didn't answer them in two hours yesterday morning at Christ Reformed Presbyterian. But we can look at a very 
crucial passage in the Gospel of Luke, the first four verses, which is the one place in the New Testament, really in the whole of Scripture, that tells us in the greatest detail, at least for those books that are narrative in form, history, biography, what the author understood himself to be doing. I was delighted to see uh, some NIVs in your, well, they're not pews, what are they? Chairs. <laughs> and I'll be reading from the NIV as well. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, the NIV very helpfully divides that passage up. In the Greek, it is one long, uninterrupted sentence that's a little bit much (laughs) for the average English speaker especially if you're trying to read it in one breath, which I didn't make any attempt at. But if you translate it so that it is one long, giant sentence, as it was originally, the main clause, the part of the sentence that can stand alone by itself, comes in verse 3 where Luke says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We have two grown daughters. Our younger one was uh, a voracious reader. She could get through books that most kids her age weren't even yet reading in a remarkable amount of time. And when we didn't believe she really was retaining anything, we quizzed her and found out she did. And at some point in junior high and high school, she developed the uh, characteristic of finishing a book and announcing triumphantly to whoever was around, I read a book. And that was the end of the conversation, and we moved on. (laughs) The first time I preached a sermon somewhat similar to this, I was preaching to an audience in which there were a lot of children, and so I was trying to think of something that could slightly capture their attention now and then. And I imagined Luke at the end of this work, and you're going to be going into Acts, which is his second volume. 
I imagine Luke, I don't know if he ever did it, somewhat triumphantly saying at the end of it, I wrote a book. (laughs) I wrote a long book. (laughs) I divide it into two parts. Maybe he, even if just mentally, said something like, I wrote the book. The book about Jesus, and then the book about the early church. But why? These four verses, again, if we still keep them as one giant sentence and unpack them part by part, have four subordinate clauses that modify the main clause. I'm sorry if that sounds too much like high school English. couple more months and we'll be talking about the elves who are also subordinate clauses but that that's that's a different meaning (laughs) the first subordinate clause is somewhat literally in as much as many have undertaken to draw up a an account or a narrative of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Luke knew that other people were writing about Jesus as well. I love whoever put together your bulletin. We used to do that at Mission Hills. Try to help people pay attention, stay awake, key sentences, fill in the blank. If you like that, here's the sentence. Catch the words to fill in the blanks. Luke wrote, because there were other written accounts about Jesus circulating. Luke wrote, because there were other written accounts about Jesus circulating. We know about Matthew and Mark. We don't know how many other stories there might have been. Some by word of mouth, some written down. Scholars have had hypotheses about smaller written sources that the gospel writers may have used because there are bits and pieces that seem to be stylistically homogeneous. Maybe the beginnings of what would later become some of the apocryphal gospels that distorted or added fictional material, or had a more fanciful idea of who Jesus was and what he did. Maybe the nuclei of those were beginning to emerge. We don't know, but there were at least several other accounts in circulation. And it's interesting that Luke describes, not immediately, Many have undertaken to drop accounts of Jesus, just announce his subject right away. But rather, he says, of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Some translations say accomplished. But it's, it's the same word that you get in passages where the New Testament writers say that prophecy has been fulfilled. 
Right at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, he is probably setting his readers and listeners up for what he will say at the end of his gospel, quoting Jesus in his resurrection appearance. When in Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus says to the disciples, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Names for the three major parts of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Whatever in those books pointed to Jesus is now in the process of being fulfilled. Luke highlights this at the beginning and the end of his book, and he'll do it in Acts as well. Things predicted are now coming to pass. A new era has arrived. That's worth telling a story about. And telling it properly. Commentators debate if there's any implied criticism in verse 1. Many have undertaken. Well, then, why, why do we need another one? <laughs> Maybe Luke wasn't sure. Maybe he didn't know all that was circulating. Maybe he had caught wind of some things that were circulating and he wasn't quite sure they were telling the story straight. It's hard to know how much to read out of that comment. But by the time we get to the end of the paragraph, it will be clear that Luke is convinced he's telling the story straight. And so that brings us to the second subordinate clause in verse 2. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Key statement with blanks to fill in. I don't want anybody to get lost. Just lay it right out there. Luke wrote, by using what was faithfully passed on to him by other Christians based on eyewitness testimony to Jesus' life. Luke wrote, by using what was faithfully passed on to him by other Christians based on eyewitness testimony to Jesus' life. There are three key expressions in this verse that all lead us in the same direction. The things that have been fulfilled among us were handed down. If you're familiar with the New Testament characters, you know that Luke was not one of the 12 apostles. Luke was the one Gentile writer of a New Testament book. He was a a doctor. The Apostle Paul calls him his beloved physician. He accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys, not all of them. 
when you start studying Acts and get a little ways, especially into the latter two-thirds of the book, you'll recognize when Luke is present because all of a sudden the narrative will no longer be that Paul did this and they did that, but we did such and such. And that's the cue that Luke is present. Luke was not present for Jesus' life. Probably never saw him in the flesh. So he had to rely on what was passed on. But that's a term that's more of a technical term in the Greek than it usually is in English. It means the faithful transmission of oral tradition, possibly even memorized and passed down from one person to the next. By those who were eyewitnesses, they had actually seen and heard Jesus. And servants of the word, another innocuous sounding expression we don't always think much about that actually meant someone who was appointed and authorized by a particular community to speak on behalf of them, not just anybody. It was somebody who was trusted, knowing an account, knowing an epic narrative, knowing a report, and trustworthy enough to repeat it accurately. And this was the day of oral culture. Most people could not read or write. That didn't mean they were dumb. It just meant they learned differently. Most people didn't have the 101 distractions, and they certainly didn't have access to the information that we have. But from toddlerhood on up, Jews often memorized large parts of the Scripture. Greeks often in their schools memorized large parts of the writings of Homer. They had cultivated the ability to do this, that we don't, we don't have the same need. Whoever the eyewitnesses and servants of the word were that Luke relied upon were trustworthy people authorized to tell the story straight. But then comes our third elf, I mean our third subordinate clause, verse 3. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Luke didn't just trust what reached him in Greece or Rome when he was there with Paul towards the latter stages of Paul's life and ministry. Luke wrote like a historian. This is the kind of language that you find in the prefaces or prologues, the opening paragraphs, of some of the best ancient historians of the Middle East. People like the Jewish historian Josephus later in the first century. People like Herodotus and Thucydides several centuries earlier who wrote Greek history. Luke is using the language in this opening paragraph that historians used to let people know what literary genre they were reading. This is not historical fiction. 
You did other things if you wanted to write that kind of a book. This is genuine historical and biographical truth, or at least that's Luke's claim. Obviously, he needs to be tested, but we know what he thinks and wants to be doing. And if we follow those we passages in Acts, here it doesn't help if you're of Scottish descent. A we passage is not just a little one. It's W-E, not (laughs) W-E-E. My daughter tells the story of a church in England. She married a Brit, so it's raising our only grandchild in the south of England. No violins needed now, but uh, she likes to talk about the the misprint in the bulletin that printed uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and we with those who weep. Um, not, not, not that kind of we either. <laughs> it's funnier in British English, but uh, Luke lapses into we language when Paul is imprisoned, first in Jerusalem and then in Caesarea Philippi, probably between the years 57 and 59 of the first century. But Luke is a free man. For two years, he was in Israel with access to every living apostle, possibly Jesus' mother Mary, others who had heard and seen Jesus, followers, opponents, leaders. He had the chance to do his own homework, his own historical investigation. But what is it all for? The ancient world had a very different attitude toward history and biography than we do. Even before the Internet, there was something called the Congressional Record that kept a record of every word that was written or spoken in the House of Congress, preserved for time immemorial. In an Internet world, we can preserve even more than that. (laughs) Kid leaves home, goes away, blogs so that mom can keep track of him. Well, this morning I had cereal for breakfast and lunch I had a sandwich and except for mom, is there anybody in the world who cares? (laughs) The people in Luke's world would have dropped their jaws to the floor that anybody would preserve such information. Because scrolls were expensive and ink was expensive. And you only committed to writing extremely important things, not just important to you, but that you thought could help others in some way. And that's what Luke is doing. Verse 4, fourth subpoint. So that you may know with certainty 
the things you have been taught. I never gave you the third one for those of you who are meticulous note keepers. I don't usually do it this way, so I forgot. Here's number three, if you care. Luke wrote after he had thoroughly researched matters for himself, like the best of ancient historians. Luke wrote after he had thoroughly researched matters for himself, like the best of ancient historians. But he did so for a reason. Point number four. Luke wrote in order to reinforce Theophilus's confidence in his newfound faith. Luke wrote in order to reinforce Theophilus's confidence in his newfound faith. What Theophilus's name is doing here is probably filling the spot where people who wrote ancient histories and biographies, especially after doing some time-consuming and expensive travel and research, they acknowledged their patron. They acknowledged the person who helped to underwrite the cost of their work. And Theophilus, whose name means God-lover, and there are lots of people we've discovered with that name in the ancient world, is called Most Excellent, which is not just a nice honor, but the kind of title you would use with somebody who was perhaps wealthy and maybe had a high position in society. There weren't many in the early church from these ranks who became believers, but there were a handful. Theophilus may have been one of them. Later Christian writers will say that Luke, like all of the other Gospels, was first of all written to an entire Christian congregation. And maybe Theophilus was a part of it. But it seems like he may be a fairly recent convert Because Luke wants to reassure him, wants to give him certainty. Another way to translate that is assurance of the things you have been taught. A lot more that could be said, a lot more that needs to be said. None of this proves that what Luke goes on to write is flawless. What it does demonstrate is that Luke didn't think he was just writing a novel. Luke didn't think he was just telling an edifying story. Luke didn't even try to write history and biography, but not have the ability because he couldn't find good sources. He talks about previous writings. He talks about oral tradition, preserved very carefully. He talks about people he's met and talked with who are eyewitnesses and others who may also have been, but at least had most likely memorized portions of what the first Christians deemed crucial for understanding 
the life and ministry of Jesus. And he writes an orderly account, sometimes chronological, sometimes thematic or topical, but there's a rationale or a logic behind why he includes what he includes in the order that he does. All to bolster Theophilus' faith and every other Christian who would come to read his work. He wrote the book. Lots more has to be said if you're going to comprehensively answer that question. And I take it for the last several weeks, you've gotten a lot more. So that's good. But there still are a lot of people in our world who might agree with everything I've just said. The Bible is the best and most trustworthy and most authoritative and most important book humanity has ever seen. And if you start to offer a revisionist approach that challenges those thoughts, some of these people will be the first to be outraged. But do you read it? Does it make a difference in your life? There have been a few times in my life when I've asked some follow-up questions to, to people with that kind of attitude, and I've realized they're much better at causing a ruckus when anything challenges their view about the Bible than telling us anything that's actually in it. Who cares if it's the greatest book ever written if it makes no difference? In your life. My life was turned at least 90 degrees. (laughs) I wasn't a terrible kid. I was a pretty compliant child. (laughs) I'd be lying to you if I said it turned me around 180. (laughs) I just hadn't gotten into enough trouble yet for that to be true. But it was at least a right turn. It's at least 90 degrees. Has it had at least that an effect on you? It can, if you let it, if you read it regularly, if you use a good study Bible so that when you puzzle over something, you've got some notes that will help you out. If you're involved in small group Bible studies from time to time, if you are a part of a church, as you clearly are, It regularly teaches the Bible in multiple contexts. Then you can say with my younger daughter, I've read the book. And Luke will be happy that he helped to write it. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for this amazing collection of 66 books that we've only just grazed the surface of one small four-verse passage this morning. But what a rich passage.
passage that is. What an encouraging and reassuring passage that is. Give us the wisdom and creativity with every person we get to know and count as any kind of a friend to meet them where they are and find a natural way to talk to them about you and talk to them about your word. And may we have the experience of your word that enables us to just tell other people what's happened to us. And then please use some of the information of these recent weeks, this series, to help us answer questions that others may have or objections that they may voice. And if they ask questions that we don't know an answer to, help us to use that as a a stimulus to find answers and go back to them and share what we've learned. Help this book, help this collection of books to make literally a world of difference in transforming our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close our time with this song?